Amen. You can grab a seat. Uh, well, if you've got our elementary age kids, we'd love for them to go be a part of our Vine Kids time, and uh, they can follow the Kenworthy ladies right out the door as they lead the way. You're good. So we have a, a special guest this morning uh, that's going to be sharing a little bit with us before we continue into our movement through the book of Hebrews. Uh, he's a guest of Carson and Katie Rock staying at their house, and he's got a, a great story and a great testimony about who Christ is. And so Carson's going to introduce him, and then we're going to let him share his story and, and uh, celebrate some truth of God's promises together this morning. Thanks, Treb. So we have a new friend. His name's Francis Xavier Sosu, and he uh, is serves on the board of an organization called the Pearl House, which my wife Katie also serves on. And the Pearl House helps girls um, in Ghana who are uh, in need of support and education and a place to live. And so uh, it's a really cool organization. But Francis is not just involved in that. He's involved in a very many number of things, as uh, we've come to learn. He serves as a member of the parliament in Ghana. Uh, He owns a law firm. And uh, his story is one that is just an amazing example of God's provision in his life and the way that God has carried him through a lot of different circumstances. And so I'm excited for him to get to share with us this morning. Uh, The last time he was in the United States, he was speaking at the United Nations. And I think the time before that, it was at the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And so it's a real honor for us to get to have him here with us this morning. Uh, So please help me welcome Mr. Francis Sosu. Wow. Hallelujah. Praise God. Well, in Ghana, we are very used to saying hallelujah, and um, you respond amen. Hallelujah. Wow. Um, It is such a blessing being here, and I want to start by thanking Katie and um, Carson for welcoming me into their home, just like Jesus commanded, opening our doors to strangers that may not know from afar. But I'm glad that I'm connected uh, by virtue of the Pearl House project that both Katie and myself serve on uh, on the board. Um, as Carson said, my name is Francis Xavier Sosu. Um, I was born many years ago to a family that was, um, I would say, very deprived. My mother was a slave girl, uh, and she was a slave to the shrine. Uh, in Ghana, there is a practice called trokoshi where virgin girls are given to a voodoo shrine to atone for the sins of their forefathers. It is called the practice of trokoshi. And my mom happened to be a victim of that practice. And my dad was an alcoholic for almost all his life. And uh, the two of them uh, gave birth to six of us. Now, our firstborn, Vinolia, was blind She was not born blind. She only had measles. But my parents thought that uh, she was under some spell or some witchcraft. And they looked on until she became blind. Our second born, Lisbeth, she dropped out of school after junior high school. And I was the third born. And because of the challenges of our family, we all became street kids. And I was living on the streets of Accra. I used to sell everything sellable on the streets of Accra from pepper, tomatoes, onions. I used to push trucks, and sometimes we used to beg for money before we can eat. There were many times that we picked food from garbage so that we would be able to feed. And I kept doing that whilst still in school. 
And finally, when I was in the senior high school, that was the time that I was at a point of dropping out of school. When a group of Christians, uh, through the Church of Christ, they had a project called the Village of Hope Orphanage. They reached out to me and rescued me from the street. And was at the Village of Hope Orphanage, um, I gave my life to Christ and uh, got baptized for the remission of my sins. And from that day, my life began to change. And from the Village of Hope Orphanage, I went to the University of Ghana where I did my first degree in sociology, after which I went back to the Village of Hope to serve uh, during my national service. Whilst serving at the Village of Hope, I met a man known as Don Barnett. And Don Barnett was an elder in the Memorial Road Church of Christ in Edmond. And Don Barnett uh, had come to the Village of Hope to build three homes for the orphanage. And he inquired what I wanted to do with my life. I said I wanted to be a lawyer. And he said, I'm willing to support you to become a lawyer. And from that day, we started a process for me to come to the U.S. to study law at the Pepperdine Law School. Uh, however, I could not get the full scholarship, so I decided to do the law in Accra. And he paid my way through law school until I was called to the bar in 2010. After I was called to the bar in 2010, we got married uh, in 2011, and we named our first daughter after the wife of Don Barnett. Uh, unfortunately, we lost Don Barnett on his 91st birthday. Um, and we know he's going to be with the Lord, but um, it is very sad losing him. And he was the reason why I came back to the States. Uh, and we were at his uh, celebration of life over the weekend. And that's how come I managed to be here today. But I can say that the intervention of Christians in my life and uh, accepting Christ as my Lord and personal Savior and the intervention of Don Barnett in my life actually changed my life entirely because not only did I become a lawyer, I became the foremost human rights lawyer in Ghana for the past 10 years. And in Ghana, I've represented over 800 people in prison who have been incarcerated for wrong reasons and I released almost all of them. And I went into competitive election and now I have been elected as a lawmaker and a legislator in Ghana. I have no doubt that someday I can become the president of Ghana, but it all began because some Christians cared and Christians were willing to do something about my life. And that is the reason why I believe that if I lose my mom, if I lose my dad, and if I lose the love they were giving me, if I lose all things I may possess, I know that I still have Jesus. I know that I still have Jesus. And I know that I still have Jesus. If I lose all things, I may possess, I know that I still have Jesus. Jesus is the end of our story. Thank you and God bless you all. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you. So glad you're here.
Now I know how I'm going to close out my sermon. I got one in the hopper. That's good. Um, man, thank you so much, brother, for sharing your story, for being here with us. It is a real privilege. I mean, United Nations, Brooklyn Tabernacle, the Vine Community Church naturally flows off the tongue in terms of importance uh, of uh, places to be and share your story and whatnot. But we are glad that you're here. Uh, welcome, exciting things. So it is an incredible story to hear and actually flows really well into kind of where we are this morning because the truth is, is that much of what Hebrews is teaching us is that apart from Jesus, we have nothing. We have no hope. We are destined for um, a life that is ends in a place where we ultimately will fail, where our own actions, activities, and moral compass will lead us to a place that's a dead end. That the old covenant, the old way of life, was never meant to save, but was always pointing to something greater and something better. And that's what we ended last week, talking about the old covenant and the fulfillment of the new covenant, the promise that Christ is and all that he came to do. And the book of Hebrews is really that incredible picture. It's our author telling the church, saying, look, you were always meant to actually know God. You were meant to have a relationship with him. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of redemptive history to bring us to a place where you personally can know Jesus. And so for the past 19 weeks, we've actually been exploring this book in this deep theological dive. It hasn't been easy. We've taken some, some difficult roads. We've explored some places that are, are hard to understand. But we've always come back to the exact same place, which is Jesus is all that we need. And if we had to wrap the entire book of Hebrews up in a couple of sentences, it essentially would be that Christ is sufficient and Christ is supreme. That the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ is all we need. He is enough for everything, and that in him all things hold together. And our author is pleading with the believers, Hebrew believers, to remain faithful to the God that has rescued and saved them. And so he's done that by way of showing them that the old way of life they're coming out of as Hebrews is actually it's not all that God intended. God intended for them along the way to always meet the redemptive Savior, Christ. And so that's why he begins by showing them that Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the high priest. He's now the mediator, right? Jesus is now the mediator and the fulfiller of the old covenant and the bringer about of the new covenant. And we spent the past 19 weeks kind of exploring those things. And last week we landed on this idea of the old and the new covenant. I spent quite a bit of time kind of breaking down the difference between the old and the new covenant, trying to understand what the old covenant was meant to do and where it fell short and what the new covenant is in Christ sealed in his blood and the promises that we have in that. Now, we got a little bit of a foreshadow in that first part of Hebrews, but now we're going to begin to dive a little deeper. He gave us a quick glimpse last week of why the new covenant was better than the old, and now he's going to begin to break that down. And this morning, we're going to see our author do that by walking us through some Old Testament, Old Testament tabernacle worship, look, having us look at the tabernacle itself, furnishings in the tabernacle, rituals of worship to demonstrate what God was doing, where, what we were missing, and just what Jesus actually provides. And why this is important for us is, is because it ties together this incredible picture of God's redemptive history. A lot of times we think that history begins with us, begins with me. I don't have, a, have to have a deep understanding of these things. But the great picture of redemptive history begins with creation and runs us through the second coming 
of Christ. And it all ties so beautifully together as a reminder that God was and is always at work. And he has this incredible promise that is fulfilled in Christ. And that promise is for you and it is for me. And that for the Israelites, those Hebrew Christians that are listening to uh, our author kind of unpack this story, that that promise to know God was actually for them. And as we'll see today, that wasn't a promise that most of them had believed. Um, God was always so distant, so inaccessible. But for the first time through Jesus Christ, God becomes fully accessible through the blood of Jesus. And so we're going to learn today how the tabernacle worship opened up the doors for a true relationship with the living God. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter um, 9. We're going to move all the way through 14 this morning, and I'm going to try and do a whole bunch of things in a quick few moments because uh, I want to get us to the, to the end in 11 where the, the beauty really begins. But um, if you've got that, go ahead and turn there, and uh, we're going to take a moment and we're going to pray together, and then we will dive into it this morning. Lord, I thank you that we have true life in Christ. As we heard this morning from our brother, Lord, we have saving life in Christ. It's what unites us as believers across space and time. It's what drags continents together across oceans, Lord. It's what unites families. It's the healer of all brokenness is the reality that Jesus is what we have in common. Lord, it was what was really true in the New Testament, that these believers were from all walks of life, whether they were Hebrew Christians or Gentile Christians or from this part or that part or this dialect or that dialect. They were united together in a common love for Jesus, a common rescuing of Christ. And Lord, the truth is this room is made up of people from all kinds of places, all kinds of ages and demographics and things, some from here, some not, some new to the church, some old to the church. Some have been walking with Christ for years. Some are still trying to figure things out, Lord. Some from this part of town, some from that part of town. Some from this background of church, some from that background of church. But the reality is we are knit together with one common thread, and that thread is Jesus. And so this morning, Lord, we are tied together with redemptive history with the Hebrew Christians. That because of Christ, we are knit over 2,000 plus years of history. We are knit together. That the promises that you gave these believers are actually promises for us. We take that for granted. Sometimes we're so shallow in our thinking that we just want to know how things affect us as opposed to what you've been doing and the people that you have saved along the way and the way that you have moved and the miracles that you have done and the beauty that you have brought forth. And so, Lord, this morning I prayed in the midst of some detail-oriented things about the Old Testament and tabernacle worship and all those pieces, Lord, we would actually find ourselves being rescued by a God who always wanted us to know him. And he created a way through Christ for us to have access, even in our sinful hearts, to be freed and forgiven and have access to holy, creator, mighty, beautiful God, redeemer of all humanity. Lord, we ask that you would teach our hearts this morning. Take a moment right where you sit, and before we kind of dive into this text, just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. In your own heart, right where you sit, no matter what you've got going on, just ask the Lord to teach your heart. Teach me something new or or instruct my heart, Lord. Just whisper that God would teach you this morning.
as we do each week, just take a moment and pray for someone beside you. Even if you don't know their name, maybe you've never seen them before. Maybe it's your spouse or your kiddo. Just pray that God would move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. We want to be a church that is just driven by our desire to see people know Christ. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday is not about you. Pray that God would move in his people. That he would teach hearts. Lord, we come before you this morning asking you to teach us, to instruct us, to reveal truth to us. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you and we don't take it lightly. And so we ask you to teach our hearts in the name of Jesus. Amen. So like much of Hebrews, there is a whole lot there. And we could spend an eternity unpacking some of this. In fact, I could probably spend three weeks trying to unpack for you the theology of tabernacle and temple worship. Excuse me. To unpack the tabernacle and temple worship and why things were ordered the way that they were and what God was doing and why specific things were placed certain places and the theology behind the inner room and the most inner room and the difference between the tabernacle itself and the temple. And we can get into all that and we could talk about the deep history and what God was doing in his people. But the truth is, as we're even going to see our own author say, we don't actually have time for that. Uh, He actually tells that to the people. He's saying, look, I don't have time to get into this because I want to get to something bigger. And that's kind of where we are today. We're going to hit a few highlights, but we're trying to get to a little bit of a bigger place where we can see, as we began last week, just why the new covenant is so much better than the old. And if you're not quite up to speed with the old new covenant, our promise is that we're going to get those messages up and online. Brandon's working on it as we speak. And uh, we're going to get those up so you can hear last week's to kind of follow that track and that train of thought. So visit that and you can listen to that a little bit. I won't go into it too much this morning, but the new covenant is so much greater and that's where our author is taking us. So we're going to look at all 14 of these verses this morning. I'm going to read them all together and then we'll kind of plow through them a little bit. But this is chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and it also had an earthly sanctuary, a tabernacle that was set up. In the first room, there was a lampstand and the table of the consecrated bread, which was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had a golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. The ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry out their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that they committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. This is to say, not part of his creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats or calves, but he entered by the most holy place once for all by his own blood, 
having obtained eternal redemption, the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial unclean, sanctify them from the outward clean. But how much more then would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse the consciences from those that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. There is a lot there. In fact, about midway through, I'm sure you zoned out of all of that. But it's important. And our author's trying to do a couple of things. He Remember our audience. He is actually addressing, and we believe preaching. I firmly believe that this is probably not a book that was written, but a sermon that was preached and transcribed. And you get that sense as we go through the book. And it feels much more like he's just sitting down speaking to this group of Hebrew Christians who are being pressed to turn away from their newfound Christian faith and return to Judaism and its promises. And he's pleading with them, and he has been for the past 19 weeks, essentially, in our study, to not turn away from Christ, to not return to culture and the way things were, but to understand how much greater and how much better Jesus actually is. Better than the angels, better than the law, better than Moses, that he is the the new and better high priest, that the old covenant has been fulfilled and there is a new covenant that is better and Jesus is the mediator, all of these things. And he's pleading with them and he says, okay, let me show you just why the new covenant is better and what it actually brings about. And he gave us a foreshadow of a few of those things last week and he's going to go into detail over the next few weeks of just why and what the new covenant actually gives us access to as followers of Christ. And the first thing he does is basically present us with a couple of questions. He goes, I want you to consider the Old Testament tabernacle worship and what does it teach us? I want you to consider Old Testament tabernacle rituals and what does it teach us? And then I want to show you how and why Jesus surpasses all of it. And that's essentially what he's doing in this text. Consider the architecture and the furnishings of the tabernacle worship and what it teaches us. Consider the rituals of that worship and what it teaches us. And let me show you just why Jesus is better and greater than all of it. And that's what he does. He says, I want you to remember your history, remember your forefathers, and remember how worship took place. And he addresses life in the tabernacle. Now, for those of you that are Old Testament scholars, you will recognize that there is a difference in tabernacle worship and temple worship, right? Tabernacle worship was essentially a mobile version of the temple that was built much later. The tabernacle, or tent of meeting as it's often called, was what God dwelled in as the Israelites wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. Right? It was the centerpiece of God's presence, and the Israelites, as nomads, packed it up and took it with them. It was an ornate, expensive, incredible tent, but it was just a tent. That's why it's called a tabernacle or a tent. It was movable. And as the Israelites moved around, they would establish that tabernacle in the center of their gathering, and they would all camp around it. All three plus million of them gathered around the tabernacle. And worship took place in there. And had two, as we're going to see, it had several different rooms in it. And the tabernacle was movable. But then Solomon built the actual temple on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. And that temple stood for like 400 years. And the Babylonians came and knocked it down. And then Zerubbabel led the effort to rebuild the temple. And they rebuilt it, and Herod added a whole bunch of great stuff in 19 B.C., and then it finally got kicked down for good by the Romans in uh, A.D. 70. But essentially, the temple was the permanent tabernacle. But it was much more ornate and giant and massive, and it was just this incredible structure. But the tabernacle and temple worship, while serving the same purpose, were very different things. And for those of you that are just kind of following all this, our author is actually talking about the movable tabernacle. 
That's why it sounds a little bit different than some of the things and the pictures that you have of temple worship. But he says, listen, I want you to consider the architecture and the furnishings, if you will, for just a moment of tabernacle worship. So I want you to remember your history and remember your forefathers and remember the wanderings of the Israelites in the desert and remember the promises of God. Because what did we learn from the furnishings and architecture of the tabernacle? That's basically what he's saying. And we learned a couple of different things, right? We learned that the tabernacle was actually designed to do two real things. One, it was designed to be a demonstration of God's presence and it was designed to all be a demonstration of God's provision. Now, this is the promise of the tabernacle because it was movable. So if the Israelites, who were God's people, were wandering around the desert, God's tabernacle or tent went with them. Essentially, what God was saying is that everywhere you are, I am not far from you. I am actually with you. God dwelled among his people. The tabernacle and the ark is where God dwelled. And so when the Israelites would move around, they would set the tabernacle up first, and then they would establish all the tents in the surrounding area, millions of them. But the centerpiece was God's presence. See, the tabernacle was always meant to be a symbol of God's presence. Later on in temple worship was the exact same thing. That is where God's presence dwelled. So it was a reminder of God's presence with them. So the Israelites could never say, God, you abandoned us in the desert. You left us. God would be, no, I actually dwelled in a tent with you. That the God of the universe, the God that made the stars and the trees and breathed life in their lungs, dwelled in a tent in the wilderness with his people. That's the picture of tabernacle worship. When they moved, he moved. But God's presence was always with them. It was a reminder, a symbol of that. So we see that. We also know that it was a symbol of his provision. And our author goes into some very specific detail. And then he gets to the end of that detail and goes, I don't have time to tell you about all that. And that's basically where we are. But just to look at a few of those things, if you will. If you look at verse 4, some of the things that we see inside this tabernacle, right? Which is a little bit different than the temple. But verse 4 kind of starts off by saying, well, if you go into this tent, this tent of meeting, there are two basic rooms. There's the outer room, right? The outer sanctum. And then there's the inner sanctum. And we know from tabernacle or temple worship is the inner sanctum is where the actual dwelling place of God was. And the outer area was where the priests performed their duties. And then later on in temple worship, there were outer courts and courtyards and pillars and all kinds of places where business was conducted. But at the tabernacle, they had those two rooms, right? And it was where ministry took place. And the priests would come in and do the, their duties in the outer room. And then we had the inner room that we learn can only be entered into by the high priest and then only once a year. But here's essentially what was in there. There were some lampstands and some other things. But as you begin to enter into the holies, right, what we begin to realize is there, on verse 4, there was a golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. So actually the golden altar of incense was right outside the door and the high priest once a year would take that incense and he would take it into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant stood in that room. Right? And the incense, the altar of incense, was essentially a symbol of prayers of the people going up to God. In fact, Revelation tells us those would fill God's nostrils. That he heard the prayers of his people as incense was being burned, and he would hear them, and he would forgive them, or he would be, take his wrath away from them. But it was a, a, a picture of God's people making 
prayers and promises to God. And he would walk into the temple, into the Holy of Holies with the altar of incense, from the altar of incense where the Ark of the Covenant stood. And then there's some very specific things that he mentions about the Ark of the Covenant, right? All part of the, this furnishing picture here. So with the, all, the Ark of the Covenant was there. There was the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets were all in the Ark. And all these things are incredibly important, right? But just to kind of brush on them briefly, there was this jar, jar of manna that was a reminder of God's provision. Now you remember the people were panicking when they were wandering around the desert. They were like, my God, we're going to starve. God's going to forget us. He's never, we're never going to be able to find food or water, all these things. And every morning when the people woke up, God provided bread, manna from heaven. Literally, as far as the eye could see, they all ate to the full. And there was a, a great stories about God's continued provision. Well, in the Ark of the Covenant, there was this jar of manna that was served as a reminder that God would always provide for them, right? So that's one of the things. The other thing that was in there was the budded staff of Aaron. Now, back in those days when God established a priestly line, he gathered staffs from all the 12 tribes and he had them write their names on them. And he was going to show the tribes that the Aaron had authority by doing this incredible miracle, he took all the staves and he laid them outside the tent of meeting. And he said, basically, in the morning, come back and I will show you that Aaron has the authority, essentially, to carry out these priestly duties. And he comes back in the morning and Aaron's staff is the only one that was made of this almond branch that not only budded, but blossomed and produced almonds. It was a miracle. It did all three stages of growth in one night and it was the only one. And therefore, by giving Aaron the authority that God has chosen him. And so they took that staff in there with the ark. And the ark also contained, right, the tablets, the stone tablets that Moses was given by God himself, etched by God's own finger, to begin the moral law that would govern the Israelites. This was God's promise and covenant sealed by God. And they carried those stone tablets around in the ark. God's provision, God's sovereign rule. And then he goes on to explain how the atonement cover was covered in gold, how these two cherubim, and the two cherubim on top of the atonement cover pointed and overshadowed to the glory of God, meaning essentially that on that place, this is where the glory of God truly dwelt. All those things to basically show this, right? That the furnishings of the Old Testament tabernacle worship were meant to provide, to do two things. One, to show us and point to God's presence, and two, to remind us of God's provision. God showed up. He protected his people. He ruled over his people. He was their one true king. He fed them every morning. He was their God. But here's the kicker in all that. If you and I lived in those days, these are things we would have never seen. And in fact, almost everyone that lived in those days never saw them. The only people that saw those things were the priests, and they would come in the outer room, and they would see the lampstand and the things that were there. But in terms of the ark itself, it was only seen by one set of eyes and only once a year because that's where God's presence dwelled. The reality was that Old Testament tabernacle worship with its architecture and its furnishings and its rituals was designed to be a reminder and a symbol of God's presence but was never meant to usher us into God's presence. We always had to have a mediator. There always had to be a high priest. We did not have access to holy God on our own. And so the reality, what we learn from all that, is not just a bunch of historical things that God was doing, but that God promises to be with his people. He promises to provide for his people. But it was never the end to usher us into a nearer presence with God. 
That was always something that was to come. So we see that. The second question we deal with is, well, what are the rituals, the actual rituals of worship teach us, right? And that comes in verses 6 through that next little section, 6 through 10 or 9 or whatever. It basically says, look, everything was arranged like this, the ark and the budded staff and the jar of manna and the lampstand and the incense. It was all arranged this way. And the priests entered regularly into the outer room. They carried out their ministry. But the high priest entered the inner room, and then only once a year, and never, ever without the blood, without blood that he offered for himself and the sins of the people that they committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing them that this inner place, this most holy place, has not been disclosed, right? And it won't be disclosed and show us God's presence as long as the tabernacle is still Standing. It's an illustration indicating the gifts, sacrifices offered that couldn't clear the conscience of the worshipers. This is basically what he's saying. When we look at the rituals of Old Testament worship, they teach us a few things. They first teach us what we're missing. And what we're missing with Old Testament tabernacle worship is the presence of God. Brandon and I were talking about it this morning. The people lived in separation from God. The only access they had to holy, majestic God was through someone else, was through a priest or ultimately the high priest. Old Testament tabernacle worship gave us a glimpse into the promises of God, but it didn't give us the presence of God. You or I, we would not have known God. We would not have worshipped God. We would not have known him intimately. There would have always had to be a go-between because of our deep sinfulness and God's ultimate beautiful holiness that it showed us that we need and we're going to be given this presence of God. So it was a reminder of separation, always. Curtains, you know, like on airplane. Back in the day, before 9-11, there used to be the curtain between first class and the rest of the universe, right? It always was there. You knew something better was up there. You knew it. But you could never be a part of it, right, until you were actually invited in. And essentially, It's that same picture. There was always a curtain that separated people from God. And in tabernacle and temple worship, it was a literal curtain. That's why when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple in Jerusalem was torn in two from top to bottom. Meaning that God had destroyed the barrier between himself and humanity. And that through Christ, we would be gaining access. We'll talk about that more in a moment. To who God is in his presence. So Old Testament worship ritual was a reminder of what we are missing. It was also a picture of our deepest need. We had this deep, deep need that Old Testament worship could not suffice. And we talked a little bit about that last week. And that need is the forgiveness of sin. So what we learn in verse 9 here is that, or verse 10, is that as we offered and were offered the sacrifices of bulls and goats and heifers, right? They couldn't actually clear the conscience of the worshiper. They were atonement sacrifices. We talked about it last week. What that meant was this, is that the sacrificial system in the Old Testament never really forgave sins. It just atoned for them. meaning it covered them. It made you ceremonially clean so that you could be part of life in the worshiping community but that your conscience was never truly clear because you were never truly forgiven. You were just atoned for. The things that were offered in Old Testament sacrificial system were not for the forgiveness and clearing of the conscience of sin, but instead 
The blood covered and atoned for the sin because something had to cover it. And so what it demonstrated to us was that we have a deep need for forgiveness. In other words, the conscience of the worshiper was never clear. Meaning that I still failed. Although I can engage in worship, I am still held in responsibility for the sin in my life. I've never and won't be truly forgiven. And it's one of the glaring and massive problems with the Old Testament covenant was that no sins were actually ever forgiven by the Old Testament sacrificial system. They were only atoned for. It wasn't until the blood of Jesus, as we'll talk about in a moment, that sins became truly and finally cleansed and forgiven. So the Old Testament worship system, basically ritual system, showed us, right, that we are missing this near presence of God. And it exposed our deep need for the forgiveness of sins. And what it also did was it pointed us to the reality that was to come by means of just a foreshadow. It was a picture of something better. So think about these sacrifices that were made. Verse 8 talks about the idea that uh, the Holy Spirit was showing that by this way, into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. It's an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience. So here's the thing. There is a time that was coming where sacrifices would be no more. But until that time, everything was just a foreshadow. The reality is, is that sacrifices were being made on a daily basis over and over and over and over again. And then on an annual basis for the forgiveness of sins as the high priest entered into that holy of holies. The sacrifices had to continually be made. It was a foreshadow of something that is greater. What do we know about Christ? Well, we know that when Christ came and died, he died once for all. Meaning that there would never be another sacrifice that would ever have to be made. He is the fulfillment of the old covenant. So what we learn in these setup of these first few verses is that the, to this group of Hebrew Christians, that the architecture and furnishings of the tabernacle, right, of tabernacle worship, were meant to show us the provision and presence of God. They were meant to remind us of that symbolically. But they fell short, completely short, because they didn't actually offer us God's nearer presence. They never were meant to usher us into the actual presence of God, but yet just to remind us that he was there. And then the rituals themselves, right, the actual acts of worship, they did a few things. One, they exposed our deeper need. The reality is, is that we have a deep need for forgiveness. It also exposed the idea that we don't have access to God in that system. We have to go through a mediator. But it gave us a glimpse of a foreshadow that something greater was coming. And in verse 10, he kind of lays it out there. He says, it was a matter of food and drink only. You were ceremonially unclean. You were ceremonially clean. External regulations applying until the time of the new order. Meaning that something better is coming. All the Old Covenant, all the Old Testament is pointing us to something better. Now what is that? Here's where we end today. Verse 11. That something better is Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant. He is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. 
meaning that God didn't just end a covenant, began anew. He completely fulfilled his promises in the old, and he began a new one in Christ. And this is what it says. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not man-made. That is to say, not a part of creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats or calves, but he entered by the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and ashes of heifers sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. But how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through his eternal spirit offered uh, unblemished, by an unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve God. So what we learn in the New Covenant is pretty simple, right? And these are things that we touched a little bit on last week. But in those verses, we learn something very new, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant, and he's the beginning of a new. And in that New Covenant, we learn very quickly and first off that we have access to holy, majestic, mighty God. He becomes His presence becomes ours. We no longer have to have a mediator. We no longer have to have a go-between. Why? Because Christ himself becomes the mediator. And he doesn't enter into the most holy by created ways. He actually goes through a non-created avenue through the very presence of God, through heaven. Do you see what the author is doing there? He's basically saying that Jesus didn't gain access to the Father by created means, by walking through a curtain. He gained access to the Father because he is the Father. By means of heaven, by a non-created order, Jesus entered God's presence and brings God's presence. And that promise is for you. He is now the mediator. He is the go-between, which means knowing Christ gives us access truly to the Father. He also basically says, there is no foreshadow of what's to come. I am now the reality. So there is no promise any longer. Jesus is the fulfilled promise, and he did it once and for all. Meaning that you will never again have to make a sacrifice to please or appease the wrath of God. You never have to morally live up to some giant code. You never have to do it right. You never have to make any sacrifices or any promises. God, if you do this, I'll do that. None of that. God has fulfilled it all, and he has given us access to him through Christ, and it is once for all, meaning anyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ has full access to holy, majestic, mighty, righteous God because Jesus himself is a mediator and is himself God's presence. Right? And then the final thing that we see there, and the most beautiful part of this whole thing he kind of ends with, is this. In Christ, we have true and real cleansing and forgiveness of sins. Now think about that for just a moment, right? He says, listen, when you worship in the Old Testament and on that Old Covenant, you would be ceremonially clean. That that is true. Sprinkled by the blood that the high priest would, would offer, right? You were ceremonially clean as a people group. All three million of you were clean because the high priest did something to make you ritually able to worship and washed your exterior so that God could look upon you, essentially, as a people. But he says this, How much more then could the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself by an unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death? This, to me, 
is the most beautiful picture of the new covenant. And that's this, that in Christ, I'm free. I'm free from the acts in my life that lead to death. I'm free from all the ways that I would fail, all my insecurities, all my worries, all my sin, all the ways I trampled over God, choosing myself, all my pride, all my ego, all the sinful choices I will ever make that when I profess faith in Christ, my conscience is free and clear. Why? Because Jesus not covers me, but Jesus exchanges his righteousness for my sin so that what God sees is the righteousness of Christ. We learn that out of Paul's theology, right, in Corinthians. For God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. What that means essentially is this. God's not just scrubbing dirty stains off our body, off our hearts. He has completely exchanged those things through Christ and we now are Christ's glory and he has exchanged through his blood our sin. We are completely absolved. We are forgiven. We are free. Meaning the shame you live in is a lie. You have been unchained from it and unhindered from it and it has been removed from you. The failings that you have done, the ways that you have walked, the ways that you have left, all the sin that you have gathered in your life when you profess faith in Christ, you are completely and totally forgiven from. And this concept of the Hebrews would have been mind-blowing. For you and I, we kind of get it because we've been raised in this Christian culture that teaches us those truths. But for Hebrew Christians to be free from their sin would have been mind-blowing. They were always living under the blanket and the weight of sin. Always. Every single day was a new sacrifice that had to be made so that you could even enter the area where the tabernacle was, or in temple life. Every day was a new sacrifice so you could even walk into the courts. Every day was a reminder that you needed a new sacrifice to cover whatever you have done, and even so, you were still guilty of it. To live under the blanket of death. The old covenant just made way to worship. It did not make way to be free. Jesus, the fulfillment of the old covenant, he is the presence of God. And once for all, he lifts the blanket of death. And you are free and alive in Christ. Which means that if you were sitting here this morning and you are punishing yourself for your sin, that you are living in shame and frustration and hurt and hatred and anger and bitterness, you have yet to fully understand the beauty of the new covenant. That Christ has redeemed you and set you free when you proclaim faith in him. He absolves you and lifts and washes your stains white as snow that you will never again have to worry about it and no sacrifice will ever have to be made again. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, I'm grateful. Thank you for setting me free. And this would have just rocked these Hebrew believers to think that they actually had freedom that God didn't see them for what they had done, but instead for who Christ was. That to me is a beautiful picture of the reality of the new covenant. Is that Christ, God doesn't see me for who I am and what I've done, but he sees me for who Christ is. It's an incredible, incredible picture. So what we're going to see over the next few weeks is that God is going to, our author is going to continue to paint this picture in detail of why the new covenant mediated and fulfilled in Christ the greatest promises that we will ever have. And the challenge for Christians becomes, do I really live into the truth that has been proclaimed to me through Christ? 
Today, no matter what you're doing, have done, that in Christ you are free, completely and totally free. You are forgiven. You have access to God's presence through Christ, and you have the promise of the forgiveness of sin. Not a foreshadow of what's to come, but the reality today. The challenge becomes, will I walk in that? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you just for the opportunity to gather. And <clears throat> Lord, the truth is, there's just a lot here. I love that our, our author gets to the middle of this, our preacher gets to the middle of this. He goes, all of these things, I don't have time to go into detail because I just want you, I just want to talk about Jesus. And while that history and those rituals and tabernacle worship and furnishings and, and, and rituals are important, they're all designed to point us to Christ. Everything in the Old Testament, every word from creation through the last prophet points us to Jesus. And you fulfilled all of those things perfectly in Christ. And then you established a new covenant in the blood of Jesus. And we're going to celebrate that new covenant next week as we celebrate communion. And maybe, just maybe, it'll have a little deeper meaning for us. As we stand before that table and Jesus' own words where he says, this is the new covenant. He says it himself. This is the new covenant poured out for you, shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Those are the words of Christ. What that must have meant to those believers, those, mo those followers, those disciples in that moment, yet to even know that Christ would die that very next day, but that that blood shed would forgive their sin. It would start a new promise and a new covenant, and it would close out the old. Pretty remarkable. And so, Lord, as we prepare to close our time in worship, I pray that you would etch on our hearts those singular truths. In the new covenant, we have the promise of the